Hello and welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. I'm Liberty Vitter, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and I'm joined by my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shally Men. Today, we are discussing the hotly debated topic of marijuana legalization. While 18 states have legalized recreational marijuana and the U.S. House just passed a landmark marijuana legalization bill, marijuana is still an illegal substance under federal law in the United States. Surprisingly, it hasn't always been illegal. It wasn't until the Marijuana Act of 1937 that marijuana was essentially banned nationwide. This was despite objections from the American Medical Association related to medical usage. So today, we are going to dive into the data behind the arguments for and against the legalization of marijuana. We have joining us Dr. Sylvia Martins, MD and PhD, the Director of the Substance Use Epidemiology Unit of the Department of Epidemiology at Columbia University, and Lieutenant Diane Goldstein, the Executive Director of the Law Enforcement Action Partnership and a 21-year law enforcement veteran having worked in investigations, crisis negotiation, gang enforcement, and special investigations. So without further ado, let's get started. So I'll start, you know, we were we were just talking about this before we even started recording that, you know, we need evidence-based, you know, sort of outcome usage uh, data. And I think that's really the big question is you know, the big argument that I always hear against the legalization of marijuana is that it's going to mean that young people smoke more, young people do more marijuana. And given the fact that we've already legalized it in many states, and we must have data behind this, does usage actually increase when marijuana is legalized? Should we be worried about our young people? So we have evidence-based data showing that after medical legalization, we don't see increases in usage among adolescents. And that is based upon research conducted by our research team here at Columbia and research conducted by several other research teams. There is even like a review paper showing that there wasn't an increase. Of course, we see like in the whole country, there was up until 2017, an increase in marijuana use among youth, among youth and adolescents, but that has been flat for the past few years, independent of whether a state has legalized or not. We also did like some research now following states that have legalized cannabis for recreational purposes for adults ages 21 and older. And our first paper on the topic, we used data from the National Survey on Drug and Health from 2008 to 2016. And we only saw significant increases in usage and in daily usage among adults ages 26 and older. I want to pause on this, and I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I, I just want to understand this really clearly. So people over the age of 26 are smoking more, and that was a study from 2008 to 2016. The first state that was legalized was in what? 2012, Colorado and Washington legalized in, in 2012. So you're looking at 2008 to 2012 versus 2012 to 2016. I just want to make sure I understand that. Yeah. So what we're doing is we're not comparing oranges to apples. So of course, like if we compare like states that legalize versus states that did not legalize, we might see a difference. But what we think is a correct comparison is let's compare the states that legalize cannabis either for medical or recreational purposes 
pre and post legalization. So we get a period pre legalization and a period post legalization. So that's what we did. Like we looked at the prevalence four years before and then the prevalence four years after. And now we have data up to 2019. And we only saw the increase like among adults. Yeah. And I'd like to jump in on that from the policy perspective, because I think one of the things that has been lost in this conversation around the use of cannabis, marijuana in particular, has been that once we destigmatize the use and it became legal, there's been a lot of adults who are using in a responsible fashion that is not leading to substance use disorder. And so, you know, I think it's so important when we think about how policy hits the ground is we have to ask how we link the criminal justice system with public health measures. And I think um, it's been lost is that we've been using a harsh, harmful criminal justice intervention to try to prevent people from engaging in public health harms potentially. And so we need to link the sanctity of life and reducing morbidity and mortality with the use of all drugs in law enforcement, but not use the the harsh system because it actually makes things worse. And so as we continue in this process and looking at, because I think probably we're still 10, 15 years away from full adult legalization or federal descheduling is we have the ability to design policies that are going to mitigate the harms to the most vulnerable. And I think that's what we have to focus on and then do great public health messaging to people who are going to be responsible consumers. But that that actually leads to a really interesting and 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 important data science question, right? Because as Diana, you just mentioned that there's stigmatization and before it's legalized, you know, people may not want to report they were using. Because you, uh, Sylvia, you mentioned that you were you were using survey data and I do quite a bit of surveys. I know how people tend to not respond, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, 2016 election is, is a great example. So how do we know what's the, what are the research methodology here to ensure the increase is the real increase, not just the report increase because, you know, people now feel more free to, 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 to report. Of course, like with every survey data, there might be a possibility of selection bias or reporting bias. But the findings that we have are based on data from the National Survey on Drugs and Health, where they don't see evidence of that. And actually, the data is collected in a way to make it as confidential as possible. So people don't answer questions about like alcohol or drug use directly to an interviewer. They answer directly to the computer. So for example, if you select a parent and an adolescent to answer the same the same survey, the parent will never be in the room. And what I think is also important to note is that this has been replicated in other surveys. So it's not just our data, but data from other studies or data from studies done have shown a similar pattern of non-increase among youth. Is there any evidence that marijuana leads to, I mean, a gateway drug, like that's the whole, you know, that's what we always heard in high school. Is there any evidence or data to back that? So that is controversial. So I'll give you an example. In certain neighborhoods in Baltimore, the first drug kids are exposed to is heroin. And they don't use alcohol or marijuana. That's the first drug because it it also depends on availability. Sometimes people will say like it's tobacco is a gateway drug. Alcohol is a gateway drug. Cannabis is a gateway drug. But 
to me, like it's something that is controversial and most people that use cannabis won't end up using other drugs. And and I think we also have to be really careful, especially with our with our kids in the sense that we do know, okay, you know, there's, I think so many places where I agree, I agree with Dr. Martins is because it's availability, timing, trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there are so many things that go into why people seek out self-medication. Part of it is because we don't have an accessible public health system where there's way too many barriers to evidence-based research that includes harm reduction, specifically for whether it's cannabis use disorder or for any other type of substance use disorder, right? Yes. I should be a prime example of the gateway theory because I graduated in 1979, 1975, 1979. We smoked a lot of pot in high school. I almost didn't get hired as a police officer. But here I am today, a you know, functioning professional running an organization with a master's degree, with a successful law enforcement career. And so I think that the gateway theory in many aspects has been debunked. I think Rand did a, a brilliant study years back, and I'd have to go pull it up, that bas basically talked about these issues is there's a lot of different issues. It's what's accessible. And that, again, goes back to the part of sensible regulation. You know, it yes. is right now drug prohibition in the United States is even though we're doing a better job with cannabis, um, you know, with alcohol with tobacco, we're never going to eliminate people self-medicating or trying to use other substances, but we need to do a better job of sensibly regulating and, and mitigating the harms of them in our communities. And we can all agree, our kids shouldn't be abusing alcohol or drugs or so many things that are harmful to them. But our perspective is, should the criminal justice system be intervening in those processes that really should be about adults and growing up unless someone victimizes someone. And that's when law enforcement should get involved. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with Lieutenant Goldstein. And also, like, it should be noted that, like, some of the states that have legalized cannabis for recreational purposes, they are now using their tax revenue to support several social programs. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Alaska uses funds to support currently and formerly incarcerated people. Oregon is now distributing revenue of the, of the cannabis taxation to mental health and treatment programs, to public schools and law enforcement. And I absolutely agree that there will always be a subpopulation that will be self-medicating that if they had access to treatment, like especially now with the pandemic, like how many kids are anxious, how many kids are depressed and don't have access to the right provider. You mentioned revenue. Now, that's another a big argument, right? Uh, the whole idea of uh, this can bring significant, you know, revenue to states and potentially to the country. Uh, you know, putting aside, I, I know that people might object on the notion of their moral issues. Shouldn't money should be separate? But putting that aside, we're purely talking about data science. Question is, how were these predictions made initially? Because it's a kind of a more more counterfactual before you legalize. How would you know that we bring all these revenues? And apparently, at least for California, the prediction seems quite off. And so how can we get reliable uh, data, particularly moving forward? Can I talk about some of the issues with California? Because I sure. was one of the people that I was a spokesperson for Proposition 64. And Proposition 64 was the, the law to legalize. The California legalization. And our, again, our perspective and focus on that was 
harmful law enforcement criminal interventions. But one of the things that was always very, very concerning for me, and, and I said this during the campaign, is in order to get that ballot measure passed, there was a significant compromise that was made that has led to the propping up of the illicit market. And I think what we also have to go back and take a look at is, you know, there's this fallacy that we as legalizers said that we would completely eliminate the illicit market and, and eliminate criminal activity forever and ever. And that's just bunk, okay? There's not one person who's ever worked on, on drug policy campaign who has ever said that because we understand the human nature. We still have people who are moonshiners, yet alcohol prohibition was eliminated how far back. The intent of our drug policies should be to mitigate the harms of drugs and to reduce crime. We are never going to eliminate crime, period, simple, end of story. But there are things that prop up the illicit market overtaxation, yes. which California has clearly done, overregulation. They need to reduce barriers to entry into the system. They don't have enough licensing. And I'm going to blame it on the legislators really dating back to 1996, because I was a, a police officer when medical marijuana was passed in California in 1996. They had 20 years to sensibly regulate medical marijuana, and they did not do it until 2016. Wow. And what that did in California is it allowed the gray market to evolve, which has then made it incredibly difficult for law enforcement to go in, whether in you know a civil and administrative capacity, and eliminate that gray market. Currently, there's, I think, a bill proposed to eliminate the cannabis grow tax that they have, which would help reduce the barriers. And there's licensing issues. They need to license more people. But the biggest compromise California made that I would suggest other states should never do is they allowed local control. And so there are organizations out there that basically are working to maintain the status quo of prohibition. So they go into local municipalities and prop up banning the sales of whether it's a medical or, or an adult system. And that contributes to what's going on in California, too. So it's complex. So the projections were accurate, I think, if, in fact, California legislators would have taken care of all these other regulatory issues. But instead, they regulated like plutonium. Just to build upon that, like whatever happened in California doesn't need to happen in other states. So, for example, New York, that now just recently legalized cannabis for recreational purposes, is trying to do a completely different approach. And even though like it hasn't yet issued licenses to recreational cannabis dispensaries, if you ride the subway here, there are already like campaigns targeted to the population and regarding adult responsible cannabis use. It's yep. called cannabisconversations.org. And you see them like on Instagram, you see them at this in the subway, you see them on the internet. And I think a large proportion of the population is exposed to that. The other thing is that there is variation. Like so even though California might be overtaxing cannabis and then of course the illegal market will continue there, other states are proposing like such high taxes. So taxation on cannabis varies between like 20 and 20 percent, depending on the state. Also, like if we look at another example in Canada, they also tax cannabis there. And some people still also report that they get their cannabis from illegal sources, not just from legal sources. 
So this brings up a really interesting data science question. The black market by definition is secret. So trying to actually measure how big the black market is, is a really difficult data question. Yes, so sure. is there evidence that by legalizing marijuana, that there's been a decrease in the black market and thereby, is it the same people, you know, I would imagine the same people who smuggle in marijuana or who traffic in marijuana also traffic in what I would see personally as much worse things like humans. So, you know, are we able to measure that? Is there any evidence that this is actually decreasing the black market? Well, I think one of the first places that you look at is not that I'm a huge fan of the DEA and their, their data analysis sometimes, but we have data that comes from Customs and Border, from seizures and from DEA, and you've seen a marked reduction by the cartels shifting exactly, you know, from cannabis into other drugs. And which again goes back to the policy perspective from law enforcement, drug prohibition itself has allowed the drug trafficking organizations and the bad actors for years. We had an opportunity with marijuana. I was on a panel with one of the researchers that did the Schaefer report back in the 1970s. And it was a great panel. Can you tell us what that is? So the Schaefer report was done during the Richard Nixon era, and it was designed to look at the, the federal cannabis policy. And they came back and basically said the use of cannabis by adults is less harmful than criminal interventions into people's personal lives and their, their liberty. And they even suggested back then that cannabis should not be federally scheduled one, should be completely decriminalized, and that consumers should be allowed to do personal home grow and actually share amongst friends. Sounds kind of familiar to some, you know, current cannabis policies that we have. And so, you know, we've known, we've had the research. I mean, you know, Rand in 1996 did a great, brilliant report on what's better, treatment versus supply-side interdiction, and they use cocaine and marijuana in particular. And they found back then that the use of efficacious treatment returned seven times to the dollar for the taxpayer than the use of supplied side interdictions. So we've always known that there's been other ways to reduce the usage or the harms of illicit substances, but we've ignored it. And, and a lot of it is based on ideology and it's not based on science. I think that's the thing that that is the most harmful right now. And we're seeing it play out in our fentanyl policy right now. Yes, we've had 108,000 deaths this year, and we have a completely tainted illicit drug supply. And it's because we're focusing on supply side interdiction at the lowest level instead of harm reduction measures, instead of safe supply, instead of so many other things that we could be doing to saving people's lives. We'll touch on that later. But when you say supply side, you mean like prescription opiates? I'm talking about like drug control strategies. They're called supply side interventions that we're focusing on the importation, the distribution, the sales, possession of drugs versus harm reduction or public health interventions. So here's another, you know, study question. And, and I know this also has been, uh, you know, argument being used, which is uh, will legalization increase or decrease the crime itself? 
and uh, and again, you know, there. How do we measure those things? How do we? I think that's probably a little bit easier than the black market. But nevertheless, I think it's a it's a question that uh, people ask, and we want to see what are the data science evidence here. Yeah. So the data out there shows that there is mixed evidence on whether medical cannabis legalization impacted. Crime. So some studies suggest no significant relationship between medical cannabis legalization and crime, while other studies uh, find reductions in crime. So one example is one study in California that showed that medical cannabis laws reduced violent and property crime by 20 percent. Another study using data from 11 states in the west in the in the western side of the U.S. also saw drops in violent crime associated with states' medical cannabis laws. When we think about recreational cannabis legalization, again, it's also mixed and it's still early in its infancy. So one study has found that recreational cannabis use didn't have any impact on major crimes in Colorado or Washington state, while another more recent study found that recreational cannabis legalization led to a reduction in violent crime in Washington state. Linking to that, what we see is that in states that have legalized cannabis for recreational purposes, we see way less arrests than in states that have not legalized. But there are still racial disparities in these arrests. So I think it is important to point this out too. And that's so correct. And and I think this is, you know, one of the fallacies that's used against the legalization that we promised that we would eliminate racial disparities in arrests and in policing. And we're never going to until we really tackle law enforcement and drug control strategies and how we over police people, which is a much more complicated discussion that we should probably have another day about policing and data, right? Yes. Yes. For example, even though there was a decrease in arrest, like we see that black people are still more likely than white people to be arrested for cannabis in Colorado, which has like the lowest disparity rate and in Montana, Kentucky, Illinois, West Virginia, and Iowa that haven't legalized it, they are more than seven times more likely to be arrested for cannabis than white people. Wow. That's a huge number. And from the, you know, the disparity point, what's very interesting is demographically, like California, Hispanics have the highest uh, disparity arrests versus Blacks because our demographics are different. Mm -hmm. And so we really need to focus on what other things we can do to reduce disparities in the entire criminal justice system. But I think what your listeners should really know is drug control strategies in particular are a very, very easy tool for law enforcement to use in order to stop and frisk people, in order to undermine American constitutional rights. I mean, we're still seeing across the country, you know, I smelled marijuana. And so that was their excuse to stop people. And so, you know, our organization really feels that one of the key ways that we can reduce the footprint of policing is by changing our drug laws and to regulate policing powers. So they concentrate on the things that we should be doing, which is the reduction of violent crime, the investigation of property crime. There's other things instead of just needlessly stopping and frisking people for a a substance that is legal in some aspects in the majority of our states, whether it's medical or, or adult consumption. I mean, in the South, people are still getting horribly harsh criminal justice penalties for the possession and the sales of marijuana. And at the federal level, you know, I'm doing a lot of clemency work with an organization. It's really a nightmare when you think about that. We have people in federal prison who, in fact, were doing 
California legal sales and the federal government still came in back back in the day and arrested them. And they're still serving time in federal prison where we have this industry now. And and so the Nancy Mace bill in particular is probably the best bill on the issue of expungement, resentencing and get and getting people released out of federal prison. So that brings me to this because, you know, the concept that someone is in jail for something that is legal in so many states, you know, that there are people selling marijuana and making a bunch of money off of it. And there's people in jail for the same thing is beyond my imagination that this is happening in the United States. Yes. But I mean, that is a big question, this sort of incarceration concept. I think it's 10% of our prison population is in there for drug crimes, which obviously there's very different types of drug crimes, but that's, I don't know, 200,000 people. That's an unfathomable amount of people that are in there for drug crimes. And I'm sure a huge amount of that or a large amount of that is for marijuana use. And that's a huge amount of tax money. It's what, $80,000 per prisoner a year to the American taxpayer. So is there evidence that the incarceration rates decrease when marijuana is legalized? Is there any evidence behind that? Yes, there is. So there's a study that was conducted by Andrew Plunk and colleagues in 2019, which included 38 states, four states that had cannabis legalization and seven that also had cannabis decriminalization policies. And they saw the adult arrest rates decreased a lot after decriminalization and also after cannabis legalization. For youth, they saw a decrease in arrests after decriminalization, but not after legalization. Then there's another study conducted in five U.S. states that they saw a 75% reduction in youth drug-related arrests after decriminalization. And that was a study conducted in Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Maryland. And data from the ACLU has shown that arrests for cannabis have largely decreased by about like 18% at the national level ever since 2010. Of course, data isn't perfect. As somebody that works with the data, I truly wish that we had better data, just like Lieutenant Goldstein. I also don't like uh, data from UCR. Like, it is messy. It yeah. could be way better. Yeah. And that's the FBI, right? UCR is the FBI. Yes. You know, there's a distinctive problem in the United States relative to law enforcement data because it's not consistent. It's not mandated by the federal government. We have 18,000 law enforcement agencies that report data in 18,000 different ways. It's really hard. I mean, we can't even get our hands around the use of force data which is really probably the most important piece of data that we should be getting out of there. Yeah, but we sometimes try to get around this, like using data from surveys, whether people report they were arrested for drug possession. And data in this area could be way much improved, and it would be great like to be able to triangulate survey data with data on arrests. I think it's also really important to note, because this is a good time to talk about the difference between decriminalization and legalization. And decriminalization in the United States versus decriminalization, let's say in, you know, Canada or the EU or, or the UK, you know, we've talked about for years about the Portugal model and the really great uh, outcomes that uh, occurred in Portugal. But the United States criminal justice system does not look at decriminalization like Portugal does or other countries. Decriminalization over in those countries means there is no criminal penalties, none. You're not going to go to jail if you fail to pay your $50 fine in Portugal. They're going to come and take your TV 
you know, or they're going to find some other means to get it, but you're not going to end up in jail. You're not going to end up with your driver's license suspended. You're not going to lose your job because your car was towed or you failed to appear. And so the United States decriminalization model is not true decriminalization. It's defelonization that still has penalties, even if you just get issued a $50 marijuana ticket. If you fail to appear, there's going to be collateral consequences from that that still occur. California is really super interesting. You know, they'll send you to civil collections. It'll ding your credit history. And so we have to start looking at broadly, decriminalization needs to be tied into how we reform fines and fees in the entire justice system as well. And if we're really going to upend the harms of the drug war, we need to upend at every single level. Yeah, which is not an easy task at all, oh. <laughs> which which will take years and years like to, to change. Speaking of, uh, you know, Portugal model, since this is a, a not a unique problem for for U.S., I was wondering what are the studies done internationally in other countries in terms of methodology, in terms of their way of collecting survey data? Is there anything that we have learned or we can we can use to uh, help our studies in U.S.? Yeah, so in regards to cannabis legalization, I'm also part of a group where we're looking at data from Uruguay, which is a highly regulated market. And we just have a paper that came out actually in addiction last week in which we compared cannabis using adolescents in schools in Uruguay and Chile, pre and post legalization in Uruguay. And what we see is that, again, similar to what we see in the U.S., we don't see changes in, in youth. Like there was no increase post-legalization. Of course, like the limitations are that we only have like a short period post-legalization. Cannabis use, even though Chile hadn't legalized cannabis at the time, the prevalence of cannabis use is higher in Chile than in Uruguay. But we, we see that evidence. In, in Canada, they also have surveys showing that there haven't been many changes in the prevalence of youth. But uh, they started collecting data right before legalization. They don't have a really good pre-post comparison. But the data that they have, shows that there hasn't been like significant increases, at least up until now, among youth. You know, we always sort of wrap up these episodes with a magic wand question. And I think that this, this is going to be fascinating to me. We saw what happened with alcohol and prohibition. We're seeing what's happening with marijuana. If you could wave your magic wand, what drugs would be legal and what wouldn't be? Because I think, you know, we always end up with this question of, it's tobacco, then it's alcohol, then it's marijuana, then we lead to legalizing cocaine and heroin. Also, should we or should we not? If you could wave your magic wand, what would be legal and what would be for both of you? So I think it's really a super complicated question. And if I would wave my magic wand, I think that I would wave it to the effect of we have to start. Like my magic wand would include incremental steps. We have to tackle the violence associated with prohibition and the drug market. But I also recognize that there are harms. Look at the 108,000 overdose deaths. But that's because we continue to rely on law enforcement to solve a public health issue. And the Canadian police chiefs two years ago did a brilliant white paper report that basically said all drugs should be decriminalized. 
Public health should basically determine the amount of personal possession, and we should strategically focus on drug trafficking organizations that cause the most harm. And then let's take a look at outcomes, and then let's start looking at how do we sensibly regulate other drugs. ADHD is methamphetamine. There are people who use, and I'm going to go, you know, back to the studies. I think Dr. Carl Hart's study is, is fascinating out of Columbia. And I'm sure Dr. Martins can talk much more eloquently about uh, the results from that. You know, we focus our resources on the 80 to 90% of the people that don't suffer from any type of substance use disorder. And so my magic wand is let's have an evidence-based outcome study on how to sensibly regulate all those other drugs. Are we ever going to have a heroin drugstore on the corner? Absolutely not. Are we going to have psychedelics and cannabis? Yeah, I think, I think down the road we are. But we should have heroin-assisted treatment programs like Switzerland has done very effectively for how many years where it's been linked to studies that's reduced welfare, crime, and so many other positive outcomes. You know, is there going to be a market for cocaine? I don't know. I think there needs to be a study on that issue. It's complex. My magic wand is let's invest in the outcome public health interventions and studies. Let's divert those resources from law enforcement and let's put it into infrastructure that maybe people won't have to use drugs because they're not traumatized. And, you know, law enforcement right now has to solve every socioeconomic issue, mental health, drugs, homelessness, poverty, and we can't but it's the easy fix. So that's my magic wand. Get law enforcement out of public health interventions. So I couldn't agree more with Lieutenant Goldstein. So uh, my magic wand would be like that acute empirical evidence instead of ideology should guide any decision making in regards to cannabis policies or other drug use policies. Of course, there are related harms due to the use of cannabis and other drugs, but we see as of now, like with the evidence that we have, that there haven't been like negative effects of both medical and recreational cannabis legalization. So I think there needs to be more investment in treatment, in access to safe injection sites, in access to drugs that treat, for example, people with opioid use disorders. So there needs to be a better investment in that. And there also needs to be at the same side, like investment and prevention, and then let adults make their own choice. Thank you to both of you, uh, Lieutenant Goodsting and Dr. Martins, for this really educational and important conversation. And I think uh, part of the reason we do this podcast from data science perspective is that we just hope, I think uh, Dr. Martins, you, you made uh, some a really important point that we tend to, uh, particularly with societal policy, we tend to sometimes let too much the ideology driven uh, instead of uh, data science evidence-based. And uh, we just help, as a data scientist uh, as a group, we hope that the data can help any size to have a more rational, more, you know, sometimes dispassionate conversation. Just let's see what are the real harm, what other things are, you know, can be solved by some other methods instead of all relying on the law enforcement, for example. So I know people are very passionate about these, these topics, but I hope the data uh, and the good studies can help to uh, get all of us on a more kind of rational uh, path moving forward. So thank you very much. Thank you all so much. Pleasure. Thank you.